Welcome to the Fertility Insider Podcast. My name is Kenan Omertag. I'm your host, and today I'm talking to Dr. Darcy Broughton, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in Seattle, Washington. We're going to talk about how they're handling COVID and fertility treatment. And specifically, we're going to focus on what it was like for her to be a fellow, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility fellow in St. Louis, Missouri, at the Washington University School of Medicine. And then we'll end on kind of our anticipation of the football season and her beloved Seattle Seahawks. So check it out. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, what's up? It's Ken Omertag. I'm your host of the Fertility Insider Podcast. This is where we do the interviews. This is interview season for um, Reproductive Endocrine and Fertility Fellowships. I've got a former Washington University uh, here in St. Louis alum of the fellowship program, Darcy Broughton. She's a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist in Seattle, Washington at Pacific and Northwest Fertility. And she's my good buddy. Darcy, what's up, man? How are Hi, you? Hi, Kenan. I'm good. I'm so happy to be with you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I wanted to kind of talk to you. It's been a while since we've actually chatted, and I know things have been kind of crazy, mm-hmm. uh, you being in Seattle and all with the COVID stuff. So I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Like, what is, I mean, you guys were kind of ground zero for the United States. Yeah. So what is it, what is it, how, like looking back right now, like what's that been like? Because yeah. where you were two months ago, where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. Seattle was kind of the first, obviously the beginning of the outbreak in the United States. So I think it was a little challenging because we were, we were dealing with, you know, larger numbers before other places in the country. So we sort of felt like we were out in front a little bit. The other side of that is that we sort of hit our peak a little bit earlier than other places in the country. So we've been, you know, our numbers have been trending down now for a while, which has been good. So things are, things are really different here now than they were two months ago, for sure. Yeah. I've always kind of felt you guys are like two to four weeks ahead of the rest of the country. Yes. Did you, do you, are you guys starting to, are you guys opening back up or how open are you now? And what's a day in the life like in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been, we're still being pretty aggressive about, um, about distancing and, uh, you know, most businesses are still closed. Our governor's taken a pretty firm stance on that. So we're not really opening up um, any, in any significant way until June, we're sort of phasing in. Um, But elective sort of medical issues have started to be opened up here in May. Um, So, so yes, but I think we're still being obviously very cautious um, in the Seattle area. So, so you guys probably because you guys were out in front, you guys probably had the most experience kind of figuring out how to run your fertility practice with COVID coming on online. What were some of the things you guys started doing? Yeah, we were, you know, we certainly, you know, paid close attention to the guidance from ASRM. And um, when the recommendation came down to pause fertility treatment, we had already sort of made some changes in the clinic in terms of screening patients before entering. Um, But we took that advice really seriously. And so, you know, we, we paused fertility treatment in its entirety for you know, four to six, four to six weeks. And I've just started in the past sort of week to two weeks um, to open up in a pretty, trying to be very methodical about it. But I think the hard thing about being out in front is exactly what you said. We were a little bit on our own in terms of how to try to deal with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was a little bit harder in a small private practice, I have to say, because we didn't have a hospital system or you know, kind of higher ups that were dictating how we needed to practice. Um, And so it was really all hands on deck for the practice at the beginning to sort of, you know, consult with our colleagues and figure out how we were going to take care of people safely. Um, So it was challenging, I have to say. It was, it was, I think it's been challenging for everyone, but it certainly was for our group. Now, it's interesting you say that because some people would like the fact that it's small and nimble and you guys don't have to be beholden to um, kind of someone telling you guys what to do because that someone is a large hospital system and, um, you know, you yeah. might have to be at the mercy of all their of all the other people in the in the system. You guys can be a little more flexible and adjust. Did um was that, I mean, is there some benefit, did you find some benefit in being able to be, you know, in a private practice setting and definitely kind of, did you, were you guys able to take advantage of that and kind of 
drive it yourselves, so to speak, some of the policies, obviously following the guidance from the CDC, but you probably had a lot of autonomy. Yeah, yes. I think nimble is the right word. Um, and that's a benefit to, to working in the type of group that I work in for all things related to patient care. Um, I think it was, it's been helpful for COVID in, in some ways, for sure. And, um, you know, we haven't, I think, potentially in a bigger system, you're dealing with potential use of resources, right? And that was a big issue right, at the beginning. Right. And, and we had less of that concern about resource use, although obviously PPE was still, you know, a concern for us because we didn't have a lot of PPE at the beginning of this whole at this whole, of this whole thing. But um, so yes, we have, you know, it's great to feel like we can be autonomous and really focus on our fertility patients. But at the same time, you know, none of us in the practice are infectious disease experts or epidemiologists. Right. And so, um, you know, we needed to, to lean on and, and seek advice from, from other people in the community. Did you find that was hard to do? You know, no. It come kind of naturally. I I benefit from the fact that you know my partners have all practiced in the Seattle area for a long time, and we have a lot of different connections to different hospital systems and different physicians in the Seattle area. And so it was a lot of sort of phoning a friend um, at the right. at the beginning, um, which has which has been great. But I felt like we had the resources we needed. It was just a matter of. Um, you know, seeking advice from, from people and making good decisions. Now, let me ask you something. Who, now, as far as, and I, don't, I don't need, we don't need to get into the detail, but who kind of led your guys's, um, you know, planning mm -hmm. for, for this before, as the COVID uh, pandemic was rising during and kind of after, is it, how are you guys doing it? Are you guys doing it by committee? Is, is the mm -hmm. medical director kind of driving this? Mm -hmm. Is a charge, is kind of like a nurse lead kind of driving it? Can you tell me a little bit about your structure? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. It's always, it's always fascinates me. Yeah. Well, we have, we're a five physician practice and um, three of our physicians are owners of the practice and they own the practice with actually our two lab directors are also partial owners of our practice. So, and then, um, I have another sort of junior partner. And so certainly the owners, you know, make the big decisions, um, you know, medical decisions were sort of all looped into that, but we have a wonderful also practice manager that's been with us since we opened. And then we have, um, we have a nurse lead. And so the exact, we call it the executive team, but it's basically the owners, our practice manager, and they'll sometimes pull the nurse lead into that. And so it was really interesting, though, people in the practice really sort of took on different roles and different um, different jobs, honestly. And so, you know, my partner, Laura Shaheen, it was sort of involved in kind of national conversations and national sort of webinars and discussions about how we were responding across the country. And then I have a partner, Lori Marshall, who really focused on PPE and surgery. And so figuring out the mm -hmm. appropriate things that we needed to be doing in the clinic and in the OR. Um, and then, you know, my partner, Julie Lamb, has been focused on trying to get access to testing, which is, is still a huge challenge here in Seattle. Um, and so yeah. people... Yeah, what's that like? <laughs> yeah, it's, it continues to be challenging. So it's, it's very different here than, um, than it is in New York, where, you know, I think in response to the huge outbreak there, they really ramped up testing capability very quickly. And we have, we have not been that... Um, fortunate in Seattle, testing is available, but on a still on a very limited basis. And um, one of the downsides of being a private practice is that we have to sort of figure out which hospital system is going to help us to test patients if we need that to happen. Um, right. And so we're basically figuring out how to care for people safely without access to testing right now, although that might that that might change. And I mean access to testing as in you know testing asymptomatic people, like basically. You know, some clinics that yeah. are testing everyone that comes into clinic or testing everyone that's having a, an elective surgery. Um, and we are not doing that as of right now. Yeah, we're the same. We're not doing yeah. that. Yeah. What did, have you found yourself in kind of like a niche role in this process? Like, are you the, have you become a go-to for anything yeah. in this process? You know, it's, it's interesting that um, my other junior partner, Stephanie Rothenberg and I are trying, we actually had, there's been 
since we had to pause fertility treatment, we've had some time um, to, and it's actually been a great opportunity for us to work on other things in our clinic that we're usually so clinically busy that we don't get the opportunity to do. And so Stephanie and I are rewriting kind of all our clinical protocols right now um, and really kind of focused on clinic flow and, um, you know, in some ways it's been really amazing. I think our practice is going to change a lot for the better on the other side of this. Um, but, you know, we've realized a lot of things like how easy it is to do telemedicine and telehealth and how we were probably underutilizing that resource um, before. Oh, totally. Yeah. And we're also, you know, starting at a lower volume in terms of our IVF patients, but we were realizing that we probably really didn't need to do as much monitoring as we were doing with our IVF patients. And um, there were a lot of visits to the clinic that could potentially not be needed. Um, and so, so yeah, I think we're going to be leaner and more efficient on the other side of this, but it's certainly been a work in progress. Yeah. So to that point, I mean, I think we all know what, you know, tele telemedicine and all the things that are going to change. Like what is your, what, what is your biggest prediction as to what you think is going to, this place is going to look like this place being our specialty uh, after all of this, like, what are we, what are the lessons we're going to learn and the improvements we're going to make? What do you think is like three things that you would see? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think um, offering more telemedicine, which I think is going to enable us to expand um, the scope in terms of geography of patients that we're able to reach. And that's, that's important for us as a small clinic because we, you know, we have one satellite office, but we're really primarily located and our IVF lab is located in Seattle. But similar to you guys in Missouri, honestly, we have a huge rural population and, you know, there's, there's no IVF clinics in Alaska. Um, and we care for a lot of Alaskan patients, actually, and patients from Eastern Washington. And so, you know, I think we're hoping we're going to be able to reach with telehealth. So I think that's a huge difference. Um, do you already have an Alaska license? <laughs> no, so they, we are able to consult with patients in Alaska. They do come, they, they come to Seattle for their IVF cycle if that's necessary. And then we, um, we have sort of a group of physicians that we work with in Alaska that are able to provide sort of low-tech fertility treatment. Um, so, you, so are you billing for visits in like these places? We, yes, we, we are. Um, and we nice. used to do a lot of that you know, care for our Alaskan patients on the phone. Um, and I do think, I, I do think there's just such a benefit to be able to see people, right. Um, even if it's over zoom. Um, and so, so I think we were talking about being nimble. We were really quick to, um, to engage in, in telemedicine and get that up and running because it's, and, and we've done a ton of it because as soon as our IVF volume decreased, we had a lot more time to, to see consults. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's a big thing. And then I think our attitude just about how often people need to be in clinic, like I mentioned, IVF monitoring and testing, mm-hmm. I think we're going to be more thoughtful about that, um, which is a big... I mean, patients and staff or just patients? Do you mean both? What do you mean by staff? Like how often people need to be in the oh, clinic. You kind yeah. of alluded to patients don't need mm-hmm. to come as much because they don't need as much monitoring. Mm-hmm. But have you guys also considered like... Mm-hmm. whether you need to be in the office. Yeah, I think we have. And for, you know, it's changed a little bit now since we've instituted sort of universal masking in the clinic. And um, we've really changed where people sit in the clinic and how many staff are in close proximity to try to use our office space in a, in a more systematic way. Um, I, I will say that I think with the changes that we've made in terms of efficiency, there's potentially, I don't think that our number of staff will be as high, honestly, as it was before COVID. Um, so, so yeah, I think in some ways it's been an opportunity as a biz, thinking of the business side of it to make, um, to make court, sort of smart and efficient decisions. I want to ask you one more thing about this COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of other questions I want to ask you, but what was the hardest conversation you had to have with a patient? Yeah. You know, I think we, all of us in, fertil- in fertility medicine had these conversations over that sort of week to two week span when we were canceling cycles. Um, and that was, it was 
pretty challenging to talk to people that that have a potentially a poor fertility prognosis, you know, usually because of age or ovarian reserve um, and, and try to delay and, and cancel those cycles. And I think the hardest thing for me was that we didn't, we didn't know when we were going to be able to start again. And so the uncertainty of that was really devastating for a lot of our patients that had been on a very long journey already. I think sometimes what we forget <laughs> in the IVF clinic is that, you know, it's taken people years to get to IVF most of the time. And so this has already been an arduous thing for them. And so to have to cancel, cancel treatment was, was very challenging. So there were certainly tears and, you know, I had, I had patients that it had taken a long time for them to get to be ready to do IVF and, um, and to feel ready and be able to jump in and then, and then have to pause things was really hard and also to try to counsel patients, you know, even when we were at the beginning, allowing patients that were in the middle of their cycles to continue at that moment, mm-hmm. things were really bad in Seattle and it was, it was scary here. And to try to counsel patients about something we have very limited, we have no data basically <laughs> makes, makes right. counseling so challenging. You know, the, the things that we're telling patients about COVID and pregnancy and, um, you know, we're just, the caveat is that we just don't know a lot. And so that was really hard for me because I'm used to having at least some data and some knowledge to back us up when we're talking to patients. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I found the hardest conversations were the like, okay, should I freeze my embryos or should I just transfer them in two days? Yeah. Like those were the most, because it's kind of like, look, man, I don't really know. Right. And I would tell, it felt like I was get, like, I was really strong on message one day and like a little bit lax the next, and then like 10 times as aggressive the next day, just based on absolutely like, the information flow that was coming. And it was, I was just like, man, the, this totally. Is like, this is so, the mess. this is probably not, this is so painful. Like it shouldn't, yeah. I don't know. The messaging hard. changed so quickly too, you know? So it was patients at the beginning of their frozen embryo transfer cycle where we're telling them, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to move forward and finish out this cycle. And, you know, I would, my, my, um, sort of tone was very reassuring at the beginning and then we got more and more concerned. And so by the time their, you know, lining check comes, then it's like, oh no, now we're worried. Do we want to cancel? And so that was really hard for patients too. I think you're right. Just the, you know, having to change messaging, um, as we learned more. Um, so. Yeah. It, it was, it, it was, was tough. tough. It was tough. And it continues to be a challenge. Yeah. Uh, there's just new challenges every day. With Absolutely. So I want to, so let me, okay. So let's talk about St. Louis. All right. So I want to talk about how you kind of ended up at WashU. So you're from Portland. I'm, or you're from Seattle. Yeah. I'm sorry. You spent time in Portland in residency. So you're basically Pacific Northwest. And then you did some undergrad and some uh, medical school in the Northeast. Yeah. And then you end up in St. Louis. So how did that, so what was it about St. Louis that like, how did I know, that? Oh, I know. I was a coastal, I was a coastal <laughs> girl for sure. So yes, grew up on the West coast and then was sort of on the East coast in new England for a long time, over 10 years and came back to Portland, Oregon for residency. And, um, you know, I was very willing. I had moved a lot already. And I think most people that are looking at fellowships are, are used to moving for their medical training. Um, and I was very willing to do that. Um, and it was much more about the program for me and the environment than it was about geographic location. And, you know, I think in fellowship, you know, that you're potentially going to be somewhere for, for three years and, you know, after medical school and residency, three years felt very doable for me to do, you know, to be in a location where maybe, you know, I w- was farther away from my family or wasn't, wasn't as used to. And I had never lived in the Midwest before, but, um, you know, I miss St. Louis a lot, actually. So <laughs> what was your, what was your impression of St. Louis before you had even like, you checked this box on the interview, you know, on the ERAS yeah. form or whatever. Yeah. Well, you're like St. Louis. Like, what was your impression of it before? Well, I had point? been to St. Louis only once before, before I came to interview for fellowship, because I had interviewed for um, med school as well at WashU. Um, and so I didn't know a lot about St. Louis. I, I had never met anyone that was from there. I obviously knew that um, WashU was a great institution, and I knew they had a great residency program. I was, um, you know, 
pretty much wanting to stay on the coast for residency. So I didn't, I didn't interview at WashU, but I knew how strong that program was. And um, my, my chief of my department at um, OHSU in Portland, where I trained was a, a really a huge WashU advocate. Um, the department really has been so productive in terms of research and being a leader in the field. And so he was really supportive of me investigating WashU for fellowship. Um, and so, so yeah, and I think um, my impression of St. Louis when I came to interview for, for fellowship, I had a great experience. It was um, when I, when I came, it was during sort of the, the riots in Ferguson. So it was a little bit of a weird, yeah, like we can, we can say it. Um, we can say it was it. a little bit of a strange, <laughs> like the Michael rhythm. Brown, yes, thing, had the Michael just Brown thing had just happened. So obviously things were, you know, the, the city itself was tense at that moment. Um, but yeah. that didn't negatively imp- impact my, um, my experience interviewing there by any means. So did 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 anyone say, I mean, were when you would tell people like, "Hey, I'm going to Wash U or I'm going to St. Louis," would they be like, "Oh, really?" Like, uh, <laughs> I, did they ever? Yeah, say, I mean, yeah. I'm serious. Did that? Like, I have ever to come say, up? my parents were a little. Um, my parents were a little skeptical. I think um, people that are not <laughs> from the Midwest that have not been there, you know, um, sometimes similar to sort of the reputation of Detroit, you know, in the country is potentially um, sort of these old industrial towns that maybe, you know, um, have their issues with, you know, potentially crime and other things. And my parents were a little bit nervous about it, I have to say. But my other favorite program that I loved for fellowship was in Iowa, actually. Um, and so they were like, let, let me get this straight. You're going to move to Iowa City or you're going to move to St. Louis. And I was like, yes, yes, I am. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so what was so what was it about the program that was attractive to you? Like the program, it's the fellowship yeah, program yeah. itself. Could you distill that to like a couple, mm-hmm. two, three things? Um, you know, um, environment in in terms of sort of personality and warmth is pretty important to me in training and that's how I chose my residency program is I just loved the people there um and I just had a great day at WashU everyone was really warm everyone was genuine I loved the fellows that were there that I met that day um which was important to me and I just had really really good conversations with all of the attending physicians so um, I always say when I'm talking about choosing your training program that it's like a gestalt for me. I'm not, I'm not really a spreadsheet person. Um, so, so that was one huge thing. Um, and then, you know, I, I knew that it was a good department um, and that they, you know, produced really good trainees. Um, and it was important to me to feel like I was going to use those three years to my advantage to, to hopefully end up where I wanted to be in terms of my career. Um, but, but yeah, it was a feeling. I wish I could distill it more than that, but. But no, I mean, that's pretty good. But did you, did you, but you knew you were, this was a waypoint. You, you, you did, some people go into fellowship, they're like, oh, and this is my, mm-hmm. like for me, I was kind of like, this is where I want to be. My wife's from here. Like St. Louis is our family, blah, blah, blah. But for you, you do, did you already know it was kind of a place that you were going to like do your three years and then probably move on? Or did you kind of, was it like still yeah, kind of a yeah. blank Yeah, you know, I hesitate to say that though, Kenan, because a lot of people have come to watch you for fellowship that never thought they would stay in St. Louis. And then they, they stay, never thought they exactly. Would stay in St. Louis. Exactly. Um, I have to say, I, I had a feeling, you know, my whole family is here. Um, and so I, I had a feeling eventually I would end up back on the West Coast. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's very valuable to travel and train in different places. I actually think it's invaluable. Um, and so I, I wanted to I go somewhere where potentially the culture was a little bit different and the, um, you know, how, how they approach training might be a little bit different than where I had been before. And I had already seen sort of East coast and I had seen West coast philosophies and, um, it was a great opportunity for me to just round out my, you know, my training experience. 
Yeah, I mean, some of the advice I always get is if you can go other places during training, you should really try to explore it during med school. Try to do med school residency and fellowship all in different places. I did that, and I I would uh, I would agree with that. I I think it makes you a more adaptable physician potentially, um, which you just see different exactly. ways of doing things. And see, I think equally as important to realize there's not one right way. Um, which I think, you know, a large part sometimes of residency training is that you do sort of get indoctrinated into the, the, that, because that's where you spend your formative years. Right. And so I think it's important to see that there's other ways of doing things and other ways to take great care of patients. And it's not sort of just one way. Yeah. And I think you also tend to shake the like, Oh gosh, if they're not doing it this way that I was trained and there's something wrong. Um, if you see, if you see more people do it different ways and you're like, oh yeah, whatever. I mean, that's yeah. just what, I mean, I get it. That's what you do. Yeah. This is what and I, I did. It's just style. You know, exactly. Style. And I think it challenges, it challenges you to think about how you want to practice. Right. And, um, exactly. you know, that's, to me, that was a huge part of fellowship was to kind of, you know, watch great practitioners of fertility medicine and glean from them sort of how I wanted to approach my practice. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it. I mean, you said, I mean, there are a lot of people who show up at WashU here in St. Louis and they're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to stay. And they're from not the Midwest. And they're like, yeah, I'm here. And they're, they're here for, you know, the rest of their life. I mean, the entire institution. Is absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, St. Louis was <laughs> such a wonderful. <laughs> you got a way. <laughs> yes. And St. Washu does have a way of holding on to people for sure. But, um, you know, St. Louis was such a wonderful surprise to me. And it really was for my family too, after they spent time here. I mean, my dad just <laughs> ended up, you know, loving St. Louis in terms of, you know, music and food and, and all of that. So, um, so yeah, I was, what were some of your favorite things to do? Yeah, you, you know, I um, I lived right near Forest Park. And um, for people that don't know, it's a huge park in the middle of St. Louis. And um, it's just right next, right to, the next to the hospital. And, um, you know, as big, if not bigger than Central Park, can I, I forget. I think it I is think bigger it is than bigger Central than Park. Central. I think you're right. Um, and designed by the same, the same person. And it's just, it really is a marvel. It was built for the world's fair and, um, I miss it so much. It's just, you know, an amazing varied park with, um, it's just beautiful. And the art museum is there and the amphitheater where you can go see shows is there. And it's just, I miss forest park a lot. It was a great place to go running and walk and, and yeah, you can walk right from, right from WashU, from the medical campus, which is, or from the undergraduate campus, they kind of buttress both ends of it. Um, so I miss Forest Park a lot. Yeah, but... um, I miss the art museum a lot. You know, it's um, in St. Louis, things are free. It's like amazing. So the art museum, the zoo is free and they're all in the park. Um, and people forget, you know, St. Louis has just incredibly rich history and was a really big deal for a long time in terms of a central, you know, central lo- for for trade and and the art museum's amazing like they have an amazing collection of art um so i'm yeah they, they yeah. really do yeah it's, it's really amazing impressive. um shout out to the art museum my mom takes oh my, my gosh. kids there all the yeah, time yeah it's it, <laughs> yeah oh it's awesome and they enjoy themselves apparently I, i'm a little skeptical <laughs> i'm still kind of like oh, oh they museum. run around but, yeah you know. and then um i i will tell you that i really miss emo's pizza so um which people <laughs> you got to tell i me, know for the yeah. people who don't know st louis has a special is. style of pizza everyone's heard about chicago pizza but st louis has a very odd type of pizza that's thin thin crust <laughs> And sort of has sort of like a sweet, more sweet marinara, like tomato sauce. And then um, they put this very odd cheese on it called Prevel, which I had never heard of before I came to St. Louis, which is like a creamy provolone situation. As I'm saying, as I'm saying it yeah, all, it's, even, it no sounds, it sounds it very is. gross as I'm talking about it. But it is, um, I just became obsessed with it when I was there. I ate a lot of emos. So <laughs> apparently I can get it shipped to Seattle. I haven't done that yet, but yeah you can you can you can get it that will be that will be happening but um in general the food scene in st louis was a (laughs) nice surprise actually um 
because I came from Portland, which was super foodie city. Um, and I was like, oh no, yeah. here, I, here I am moving in. <laughs> <laughs> right, this place is going to be a bunch of cheesecake right, factory. Right. And, uh, uh, no, oh, wait, there's actually no. They got some James totally, Beard. Totally, totally. And for, um, for a great price yeah. point, you know what I mean? As opposed to like the same meal in New York. Yeah. Totally. And it's convenient. Totally. Um, so yeah, the food scene was a great surprise. The art scene, the architecture also is, you know, amazing. So, so yeah, there's a lot to love about St. Louis. Well, I got to say the food scene, I remember coming from Atlanta in 2010 and, you know, in Atlanta, there's a great food scene in that kind of Mm -hmm. end of the decade. Mm -hmm. And then coming here, you could see Mm -hmm. it it was Mm -hmm. just starting. And I was kind of being a snob about it. And I was talking to my, and I was like, nah, this isn't, this isn't like Atlanta. But now, I mean, it's far, I mean, it's very top quality. I mean, there's some real. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like people, people appreciate it too. You know, I think that's always a thing as a, as a food scene blossoms. I'm not, I'm not just being a homer. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think people were ready for it. And I, and um, so, yeah, that was a lovely surprise. So what, what is like a Midwest St. Louis-ism or whatever that you have in your daily routine, either at work oh or in gosh, your personal Oh my gosh, a St. Louis-ism. Um, or just like a WashU-ism or something like you do from WashU at work, like something that you learned here that you like bring to yeah. your style at work. What You know, you said you're, you're kind of a product of where you train and you kind of figure out what yeah. works best for you. What works best? What did you learn here that is something you've incorporated into your practice? And if there's something personal, yeah, tell us um, about that. You know, I incorporate things I learned in fellowship clinically all the time. And, you know, we joke about this all the time. A lot of the, a lot of the people practicing fertility medicine at WashU also trained there, right? And um, the, the, you know, we, <laughs> right. I, I give the exact same sort of spiel to my new patients that, you know, everyone gives at WashU, which is basically an ex, uh, a down and dirty explanation of the menstrual cycle, um, but in a very great way. <laughs> and um, I say the kind of exact same words that, that I learned in fellowship and I draw the same picture um, and a lot of patients make fun of my picture, but I'm like, no, I learned it in fellowship. I'm going to keep drawing it. Um, and right. It's a great way of breaking. The, how, how is your picture skills? Have they moved over? Oh, into the you know, I'm world, having a really hard way. time with the pictures with zoom. Actually. I need, if you have any recommendations for that, we really? have whiteboards. <laughs> actually we have. Well, yeah, you have, you're sharing. A no, whiteboard zoom, we actually right? are not screen sharing, um, which we should be doing. Cause obviously oh. we can draw, we have not, we technologically, we haven't gotten there yet. We have actual literal whiteboards. <laughs> so I'm saying that we're drawing on. No, hold up, hold up, hold yes. up. We gotta, we gotta address this. Like, um, you're using zoom to communicate yes. with the patient, right? But you're not using no, the screen share feature? No, we are not. I, you know, I I just don't think we, I don't think we've gotten there yet. Um, Yeah. Okay. We're not not opposed. We can talk offline about this. Please teach me. Please teach me because the pictures have really suffered. Because you can, you can screen share a whiteboard. Awesome. Great. And I can just draw. So all you need to do. Yeah. And I would recommend, you know, drawing with a mouse is like, yeah, that's painful. So I would recommend buying a. $50 $50 tablet okay. and I can send you a link. Um, so I'll I would up, love to, we'll talk I would love it, to, because uh, I'm later, really but... missing my, my picture. Um, so, so yes, that's definitely, that's definitely one thing from WashU that I carry with me. And then I, yeah, I have a couple lines that you say that I now say. Um, yeah, I think reproductive, yeah. What are those? Reproductive endocrinologists have a uh-huh. lot of, you know, they uh-huh. might be cliches or whatever, but I think they're, they're, you know, pretty valid phrases that can really capture succinctly. Yeah, kind of yeah. I think my favorite canonism is you... um, human reproduction is incredibly inefficient. And I say that literally yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. Um, and I think it's so important to explain to patients. So that's that's definitely one that I have brought along with me. Um, but 
what are some of the things you've what are some of the things you've learned that, since you've gotten there that have kind of that you've kind of adapted that you're kind of like decided yeah I kind of like this way of doing it this is more my style is there anything that you've kind of adapted um, since you've gotten there yeah I think adopted? you know it was a little the, the practice that I'm in now um, is is very different than than my fellowship practice um, in a lot of ways but yeah sure. practices, are, practices all are all different and so that was a little bit of a challenge with the transition, um, just like it is with any transition to sort of learn, learn the clinic, um, philosophy and sort of adapt to that, but also keep the parts of your training, um, that you think are important. Um, that, so, so fortunately I felt like I was adaptable and was able to do that. I think, the thing about fellowship that's really different from residency is you're working with such a smaller group of faculty um, in a much more sort of usually personal way. You just see them more. Um, and so mm-hmm. I felt like I had come into Wash U. There were six of you, you know, six of my attending physicians that all had different personalities that I needed to learn and um you know, work with. And it was the same when I came to my practice, there were four, you know, actually three at that time, other physicians that, that I needed to learn with and adapt, adapt to. Um, And, but I learned a lot of things from WashU Fellowship that served me sort of this day. And I think one is just really, this is going to sound very corny, but the, the, the value of evidence-based medicine and to really, you know, part of our role in this field is to be skeptical um, because there's new technology that's here every day, you know, and, and not all of it should yes. be adopted <laughs> and not all of it should be used when we don't have the data to back that up. And that was, you know, WashU was such, is such a venerated old IVF program. I say old, but just experienced IVF program with faculty that have seen the field from the very beginning Um, And then also, you know, younger practitioners that are that are closer to their training. And so I think the healthy debate that I saw in fellowship between what we should adopt and talk to patients about and what um, what we don't have enough data to support was really important. Um, And I think it's our job to be skeptical and and to ask questions. And so that is something that WashU taught me for sure. and then the more, the more I take care of my own patients, you know, Sarah Keller um, used to say something to me in fellowship, one of the faculty at WashU, and she always said, don't make their disease your disease. I don't know if you've heard her say that, Kenan. Um, and that, I feel I like have. when I just, I when you just hear it, maybe perhaps it sounds a little negative, but I think I think what that means is that you are not in control necessarily of all the outcomes for your patients. Right. And um, there's things in this field that you can't control. And, and we work in a field where it's a very binary outcome, right? You're, you either have a baby or you don't. And so um, I think take, not taking that home with you or not feeling like a failure doesn't leave the practice with a baby, you can still take great care of them. Um, And I feel like that's what Sarah meant. That's what Sarah means when she says that, Um, to not internalize every, every failure, every cycle failure, every, um, every patient that that maybe leaves our care, not having the family that they want. Um, So, so yeah. And yeah, so those are my, those are my pearls of wisdom from WashU. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she, she that that that's a that's a very solid point. I mean, that when it comes to you can't you can do everything you can, but there's only so much, you know, at some point it's out of your hands whether the, you know, the patient exactly. is going to be successful or not. But you can show up every day and you can work hard every day and you can make sure, you know, your patients are being they're concerns are being addressed compassionately every day you can make sure your staff is engaged every day like you can do that every day it's kind of like the old sports basketball adage you know like you might your your shot might not be falling every day but you can definitely play hard absolutely every day like you might have a bad shooting night but at least you you can play hard every night 
Um, that's one thing. Yes. And I, but sometimes, but I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. And that you're right. That phrase kind of, it does. And I think especially early in your career, you know, you sort of, you kind of live and die with your patients in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like it, it, um, and I think part of figuring out how to sustain your career is to figure out how to take good care of people, but to be able to, you know, not always be as affected by that. Um, and that's true for every physician. So. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, more so than ever. I mean, cause we tend, I mean, we just are so type a, a lot of us are just so obsessed with perfection and learning how to stru- handle imperfection sometimes is our yes. biggest yes. challenge. All right. I want to end with, of I want to end with a couple things here. One, um, <laughs> what advice would you have to people who are considering WashU um, um, for fellowship? And then, and then what would you have for advice for people who are just in general? Yes. So I, I think certainly give, um, I would say, look at the program at WashU with an open mind in terms of, you know, might not be potentially the geography that you had expected, you know, where you had expected to be geographically. Um, but I would say it, the, the Midwest nice sort of um, stereotype is not wrong. And so it really, you know, to, to a fault, everyone that I came in contact there was genuine and warm and that the same was true for, for our patient population. And so it was a really comfortable place to train and to learn how to practice REI um, because, because my faculty and our patients were so, um, were so wonderful basically. And so, yeah, I can't, I, the cost of living, the cost cost of living is also excellent. We didn't talk about that, but we talked about it a little bit with food, I guess, but um, true, true all around for on a fellow's salary, St. Louis is a lot better place to live than Seattle, for instance, um, or, you know, New York. So, um, it definitely does. It definitely does. (laughs) Um, so yes, that's what I would say about, about fellowship at WashU. What about general advice? Yeah, for, you kind of alluded to it earlier. For anybody who's applying yeah, for fellowship, um, fellowship, I would say, you know, pick certainly pick a place where you you feel. I, I do think thinking a little bit about what you want to get out of your training is important, um, and I think thinking about maybe the things in residency that um, you didn't have as much of an opportunity to do, you know, whether you were, you know, a high volume surgical program, maybe surgical training is not as important to you in fellowship or vice versa, or, um, you know, skill sets that you really feel like you would benefit from, I think is important to think about. And then also where you want to end up on the other end of it. And not everyone knows that. And, um, but, you know, I think thinking, how can I, fill in the gaps in, in my knowledge to make myself the best able to have the career that I want. I, I am. Yeah. We, what do you do? What kind of cases do we do? We do a ton of hysteroscopy. We're we're lucky that we, you know, have our surgical suite in our office to do egg retrieval. So we do hysteroscopies in the same OR. Um, yeah. So how about laparoscopy? Like laparoscopic yeah, I have been I have been doing, doing it right? since I've been out. No. I I will tell you that's um, partially influenced by having by collecting for boards, um, and you know wanting to have mm. a surgical case list for my for my oral REI boards, um, which I'm taking this year. So um, I will tell you that I don't that laparoscopy probably will not be part of my practice long term, just because I don't have the volume to sustain my skills, um, and I feel very okay with that. And I, I knew that when I, when I took this job that probably I was not going to be doing a ton of laparoscopy. Um, and I live in a huge urban center where we have a lot of, um, help, you know, and a lot of, you know, great gynecologic surgeons. So, um, so yes, I, we have two, I have two partners, actually technically three counting me right now that do laparoscopy, but, um, that number will probably 
decline as as the practice morphs. Sure. So they got they got delayed. <laughs> um, where they were supposed to be a couple of weeks ago, actually. Yeah. So they moved them to November. So the third, second or third week in November. <laughs> okay. So what are you doing right now? Are you just like not even thinking about it and you'll start back We're, up we're actually, we're, my study group's actually still kind of... studying. I mean, partially because it's been, it's slowed down for COVID for a lot of people, right? So we had this time and we were also yeah, busy so clinically have, before yeah. and we're trying to cram in board study. So now we're trying to be a little bit thoughtful about it, even though we have a long time till November to try to, to try to use this time. But I think most people taking it in November are not, are not studying right now. And I'm, you know, I'm not studying every day by any means. What, what, what was your reaction when you were like, damn it, they, when, when um, you found out? Yeah, full disclosure, I did, I did cry when we got the email about postponing boards. So, um, which, no. <laughs> I'm laughing, I'm sorry. It, it is it's a little so, torturous. So torturous. Um, for, yeah, I mean, people God. listening probably have not taken any oral boards yet, but, um, but that's, it's, yeah, you, you prepare a lot and it's a, it's a, um, you know, a big event in your life. And so I, but it was so funny kind of, cause we were all upset when we first got that email, but then it perspective hit really quickly, right. That then things got really bad and, right. and it was like, okay, this is a global pandemic. Like my oral boards are really not the <laughs> biggest issue here. Right. So, um, you know, people's weddings right. are getting canceled people, you know, I mean, this oral boards is not, we will take, I will take them when I take them. So, um, it was upsetting certainly at first, but, um, right. but yeah, I think this whole COVID situation has given everybody perspective about a lot of things. So. Yeah, man. What, mm -hmm. let me, let me ask one final thing and then we can kind of end the, end it from wrap it up. What, Okay, we talked about medicine changes, changes in medicine from COVID. What is some other aspect of our lives that you think will be yeah. totally different? You know, post COVID, like how will it? What is kind of one thing on your radar where you're like, damn, this is yeah. Totally well, it's it hits pretty forward. close to home for me because my brother, my brother is a chef, um, and his his girlfriend is a restaurant manager, and so um, I think we've been talking. Mm -hmm about a ton about just the food bev industry because it's really unclear what's going to happen with that in future. And so that's a lot of uncertainty in our family because of him right now. Um, because, you know, I don't think, I don't know when restaurants are going to be the same again, you know? Um, and so he's trying to be a little thoughtful right. and creative about what he's going to do in future, but it might be that, you know, going to a crowded restaurant is not something, I mean, I can't imagine it right now. I don't know about you, but like, just the thought of it is strange to me. So, you know, yeah. No, it is weird. It is weird. It's not happening anytime soon. And it's kind of weird. Like, look, I, like, do I really need to be going to this joint when there's like six people in the place? And yes. like, do I really yes. need this experience yes. Yes. to eat? Um, like, I'm married with three kids um, and another on the way. Like, do I really need to go to this joint right. for food or right. can we just bring the food here? Like for right. my wife and I, like, do we need to do this? I think that's kind of the, like for mm -hmm. other people, mm -hmm. it is important mm -hmm. to have that experience. Um, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm curious they, to see what does he think is going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is he, the conversation? He has a little bit of the mindset that, um, he thinks there's going to be much more of a sort of movement for people to learn how to cook, potentially cook even high end meals, right? Like themselves with good ingredients. And, um, and so he's really interested in sort of maybe uh -huh. branching into to food education or even whether it's online cooking classes or, you know, podcasts or sort of, yeah. you know, yeah. reaching people in a different way other than serving them a meal in a big restaurant. So um, you know, his girlfriend was just ready to take a, you know, a catering job and obviously catering for big events isn't coming back anytime soon either. So, um, you know, I feel, right. I, I feel very lucky that I, you know, we have of course uncertainties about the future of our field, but not it to that degree. Um, 
Well, I think like one of the things about our field is mm-hmm. the physical footprint mm-hmm. of our field might shrink. Like, do I need four, you know, consult yes. rooms or do I need all this space if I'm doing the visits virtually? Now, again, doing the visits virtually hinges on the fact, like, are you getting reimbursed the mm-hmm. same? Mm-hmm. Et There's some financial keys to this, I think, that will ultimately be yes. the decision in our field. But to me, the big thing Say is Say more about education. that. Yes. And just in terms of, of college, right? What's going to happen? Higher, Yeah. Like do I, like higher education, and I'm not like this is not some original idea I just came up with. I mean, I mean there are so many think pieces, but to me, that's the thing that's going to change Which, dramatically. Yeah, it makes me makes me feel sad <laughs> as someone who, yeah, right, because there's some experience, right? So, right. like, do you need to right. be on a college campus to right. get a undergraduate degree? anymore and yeah I don't know man uh (laughs) college is going to look even more and then there's a whole socioeconomic piece to this and about you know access and absolutely uh, is underlying a lot of this so I I think to me the big the big thing is going to be medicine it'll finally took a pandemic to get people to embrace technology and then higher education, two very kind of stodgy, yes, uh, traditional, <laughs> you know, old yes, kind of uh, yes. traditional yes. Um, yes. industries, yes, for lack of a better term. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that you know pejoratively. I mean it's just they've kind of always kind of had. They have a business model that has really served them a long well period of time. Yeah, yeah, centuries. And I think yeah, um, I think if it's an yeah. opportunity for us to think critically about what we're doing. Um, and that's, it's unfortunate that this is the way it was brought about for us to be able to do that, but that's never a bad thing. Um, right. so, Oh, Oh no. Are the Seahawks, I'm, are um, this, talk about making me sad. <laughs> yes. The sports situation, they released their schedule, but I don't, we don't know what that means. So, um, I don't think any, I don't think anyone anticipates that we're going mean, to be in a stadium with 62,000 people. So, um, are we going to just have like the lower bowl or I something? Know. Like I, I'm so fascinated I to know. see how the NFL owners will try to try to try to make this look like, I know, having, I know, um, but too. you know, I, I do love football so much <laughs> that I hope, I hope we figure something out. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Darcy Broughton. Thanks, Thanks for Thanks, having Darcy, me. It's for been great time. to chat with have you. Have a good one. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're interested in more fertility or infertility related content, check me out at Dr. Kenan Omertag, MD on Instagram. Mm-hmm.